so I was asked to share with you Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. So I'd ask you guys take a look at that because I'm going to read um, the verses, but the version I'm going to read from is not the ESV, which there's nothing wrong with that. I know it's endorsed by the church. Um, I like the Amplified just because it gives a little more coverage, more words. And when I look at some of the, not that I'm any kind of Greek scholar, but when I look at the Greek, it just, it's, it has more like words to try and express a thought. So follow along with your ESV or whatever version you, you're looking at. And then if you find something you think differs in some way, bring it up. Um, I think the message is pretty consistent. So um, that's just what I'm going to be reading from, just because I think for, especially what we're talking about, having more words sometimes can be helpful um, than less words. Um, and I'll also just, I'm going to read through some of this stuff. Um, and then there's points where I'm just going to pause and open it up for you guys to have your input in terms of either what you're thinking about what I've shared or what you're thinking about what you're thinking. Um, and then we'll just kind of walk through each of the verses. But before we get into the verses themselves, um, one of the keys to understanding the letter to the Ephesians and statements about love is to know that this love, the Greek word agape, is not so much a matter of emotion as it is doing things for the benefit of another. That is having an unselfish concern for another and a willingness to seek the best for another. Um, now, God's the only truly good, anything less than good, um, as God views it, misses the mark, which we all miss the mark since the fall. We've, humans have missed the mark. Missing the mark is a way to view sin. Um, we will miss the mark if it's not of God, including our thoughts, our emotions, and behaviors. And it's interesting that Matthew 23, 27 through 28, Jesus called out the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outward, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So part of the thing when I read this, what comes to me is the Pharisees, a lot of it had to do with behavior on the outside. And it's, I'd suggest that they're really managing their behavior almost everything else to avoid sin. Um, I'd say behavior is one of the easier things to manage. Our thoughts and our emotions, not so easy. People can't see those, but they can see our behavior. Um, it's what others can observe. The Bible uses the word heart to refer to emotions. And Jesus says in John 14, 1, let your heart not be troubled, which means don't worry, don't freak out. The word heart also can refer to the intellect. Proverbs 23, 7 says that, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the thoughts and intents of the heart. And finally, the word heart can also refer to the will. Daniel 1.8 talks about uh, Daniel purposed his heart. And the human heart refers to the innermost being when you put all this together. It's not just one thing. It's, it's multiple things. And so before we get into the scripture specifically, when, um, when we're asked to talk about different parts of this it was kind of our instruction was to read this and what comes to you when I, when I read through Ephesians and which is why I came up with some of this other is there's a simple model from psychology 
It's called a cognitive triangle. So Larry's right, it is a triangle. And what it talks about is thoughts, emotions, and behavior, which is kind of what we just read the Bible talks about in terms of us as a person. Uh, the point of the model is to shed light on the connection between feelings, thoughts, and actions. And when we study people, and just by profession, I'm, bo I'm both a roofer and a psychologist. And studying psychology, in my mind, is studying one of God's creations, humans, in sin. And that's that's about what it is. And seeing how they react to it and um, how they deal with life. Um, but when we study people, we find something consistent with the, what the Bible calls a person's heart. Um, so thoughts, in the way that this works, it's not complicated, but it's just essentially when you, when you look at people and some of the verses I talked about, it just suggests that um, thoughts, what we think affects how we feel and act. Emotions affect how we, what, how we feel affects how we think and what we do. And behavior, what we do affects how we think and we feel. These all impact each other. Um, now, the interesting thing about science is it's not moral. Rightness versus wrongness are not really inherent questions in science as we determine how things work and why. Now, I would argue that science came out of monasteries and it came out of studying creation, but it's deviated in terms of procedures and those sorts of things. So when you really look at science, the procedures, there's nothing moral about them. And so um, if anybody's familiar with Jurassic Park, um, whether it should be whether something should be done is more of a moral aspect. And science really doesn't touch on that. In the original Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ian, admonishes the park's owner, John Hammond. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Which is, it's, it's a famous line most people know, which really kind of highlights the, sometimes the, the, the tension between um, science and morals. So part is just recognizing, I'm not suggesting that science or psychology is moral and that it's just, it's a science, but it's not, there's parts of it that are not inconsistent with biblical thoughts or the way people in the Bible have interacted or how they deal with things. Um, Lamentations, it's full of emotion, but it always rests back with, I'll trust God. So part of just being aware of emotions and thoughts and feelings. And I think when we go through Ephesians, if we don't recognize some of that, we could be missing something. Um, now, the other thing, just to make the point in terms of uh, science and, and when we're thinking about these things and put it in its proper place, we can use the best science to for what's referred to as a mastectomy, where the entire breast is removed. It can be used to save a man or a woman from cancer, or as what's called an affirming procedure for a trans man. Now, the science behind the procedure is the same, but the morals behind these procedures are quite different. So as a doctor, procedure's the same. Why you're doing it, whether you agree with one versus the other, you're gonna come across some very different opinions, but those are gonna be mostly moral opinions. And I think that gets into really the heart of what we're talking about is really the morals, the rightness and wrongness of, of things. So if you consider the cognitive triangle, someone who's wrapped in their old self, and if you consider It's 
someone's thoughts, their emotions, their behaviors when they're in the old self and they're thinking of theft or lying or those sorts of things, you can justify those. It's a dog-eat-dog world. I mean, you can really, and it all works together fine. But what I'm going to suggest is we can think about this just to help tease these out. If you think of um, your new self. If the, what our thoughts are will lead us to having different emotions and those emotions will lead us to having different behavior. And then Paul goes through and talks about some of these things. So I just wanted to use this as something to help you sort of tease some of these apart so that they're not mixed together, just as a, a tool. Um, so when we think of this triangle, somebody who's wrapped in their old self, it'll look quite different from somebody who's put on the new self created after likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. A Christian has a worldview aligned with God and what's good. Yet we're still sinful. Uh, we're still in a sinful world and a sinful body. And we're bound to have some conflicting moments where our, our new and old selves. And the triangle is simply a helpful tool to talk more clear, clearly about the conflicts and the challenges. Um, any thoughts? Because I'll just pause and then you guys can jump in. If you don't jump in, then I'll just continue to waddle forward through this. Yes, I don't know. I was sure. sitting there thinking, looking at your triangle there, that um, in the world today, we do it the opposite direction. Well, we have people that do it the opposite direction, where they, their emotions are dictating their thoughts, which are dictating their behavior. It's going back, back around. It's like common sense and reason and all that is thrown out the window. And what I feel dictates what I think, which dictates my behavior, and then we say we're going to legislate based upon that, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And we have this conflict with those that are lose their thoughts, affect their emotions, even their behavior, and this conflict is happening back and forth. And um, was it, uh, last week, we talked about that last week, about this, uh, how we, why we have these arguments going back and forth. Mm -hmm. One is arguing from emotion, one is arguing from mm -hmm. Well, one of the interesting things is people will argue about which comes first. And when they actually go through and they measure this, um, your perception happens first. And based on what you perceive is then follows the emotion usually. And so sometimes people, especially kids that I'll work with, they just feel and they, they then they act and they haven't slowed themselves down enough to realize that they perceived something as threatening and then acted. Um, so the question is, is it really threat? Did you need to act aggressively? Because they act aggressively. Things like that happen all the time. That's where sometimes people get shot accidentally. It's because we perceive something and it just happens so quickly and we were afraid anyway so we act uh, fast. So these can be separated but a lot of times this gets so strong that we're not even aware of what we're perceiving. And sometimes what we perceive isn't even accurate. And we find out later, oh, so there's a story um, of kid riding a, a guy riding a subway. There's a father on the other side, kids running all over the place. And he's like, come on, man, just get old your kids. I mean, what kind of discipline is, you know, you, the things that would go through your mind. And then the father looks up and comments that his wife had just died that morning. 
at the hospital. And then the guy feels like an idiot because he's like, I'm surprised that you're doing this well. So what we see isn't necessarily what's going on, but our perception, you can see how quickly the perception changes. Now the emotion changes and the behavior changes. One is like, it's more about anger and like, well, this isn't fair and you should be doing this. The other one, then once you realize the tragedy that's gone on, it might be more about compassion. How can I help you? The only thing changed was the perception of what was going on really hadn't changed much. So it, it's interesting and in, in which one of these people value more than the other. I've talked to, I've listened to people talking about um, the Torah and Jewish perceptions where they say, you focus on behavior and then that will affect your thoughts and your emotions, that sort of thing. So they, they start here, other people start here, something. But if you recognize they're all connected, it's a system to some degree, it's like it, they all affect each other. So starting in one place versus another can be arbitrary. Um, so if we look at Ephesians 4.25, um, therefore rejecting all falsehood, which is a Greek word pseudos, uh, whether lying, defrauding, telling half-truths, reading, spreading rumors, any such of these, speak the truth, each one with his neighbor, for we all are parts of one another, or parts of the body of Christ. Now there's 10 types of lies or deception. I mean, people see lies, I, usually I think most people just think of one type, and I'm not going to say this is exhaustive, but they include just making errors, omissions, omitting details, denial, not being honest <coughs> with yourself, falsification, misinterpretation, bold-faced lies, white lies, exaggerations, pathological lying, and minimizing. That's not that bad. And maybe it really is, and you should acknowledge that it's as terrible as it, it looks. Uh, some people estimate we lie anywhere from five to 200 times a day. Kind of depends on how you define what a lie is and how honest people are about lying. Um, the thing is, it can be hard to speak with honesty because it impacts other people and it attacks us. Most choose poorly and either speak with honesty or they maintain relationships. It's an either or. And if we choose either or, we're usually making a poor choice. Either I want to make sure keep you happy or I want to be honest. And it's like we don't seem to think that we can do both. Um, but if you read ahead to verse 32, we're also to be kind, helpful, and tenderhearted. So in reality, we're asked to be both honest and loving. thing is, most of us choose only one because we struggle to do both. And I think that that's the harder thing is to be able to choose both. Any thoughts about that? In terms of falsehoods and lying? Were you aware there's that many different ways to lie? And how often are we lying to ourselves about things? It's going to get better. I did that with our tub. There was some, I saw water spots, it'll get better. Until they just started dripping down when Asher was in the shower. And it's like, it wasn't getting better. I knew that. How about, about that? Um, I was thinking about this the other day again. Um, that one of the hardest jobs in the world to do is, is to be a preacher or a Christian that, because we're supposed to speak the truth. In the world, a lot of times, when you, you know, especially when it comes to funerals or something like that, mm -hmm. those are very hard to do. 
and you had someone that did not live the truth or someone that appeared to live the truth in their behavior, but they, but you knew that they weren't a Christian. And how do you preach that prayer? Or how do you tell people? When you just speak in front of the pulpit, sometimes you have to say things that go contrary to what the masses are believing and what people want to believe. Some people just want to believe something so bad mm -hmm. that you've got to continue to speak truth into their lives. And they don't like it. And it's the hardest thing about being a preacher because just, God tells you, tells you not to fear their faces and continually do so in the midst of whatever's going on. Whatever well, there's like the proverbial elephant in the room that everybody can see but nobody's going to say anything. It's like, is that a falsehood? I mean, it kind of seems like it could be. Um, and, and I think the thing is when we go through all of this, if, if you just stick on one verse, you can kind of have it a little bit easy, but if you look at all of the verses together and then how do I do this at the same time, that's a challenge. Um, we all fall short. I'm not suggesting that I do this any better than anybody else. Um, one of the things I can get in trouble for and I've learned is to fluff up things a little bit. Like make sure I recognize that the person I'm talking to is a human being and they have feelings and to say it in a way that they can receive what I'm saying, which would be to be kind. It's, it, that's all it really is. Be kind with the truth. You don't need to bury somebody because what's the point? You're not being caring when you do that. So in verse 26, Paul's about to speak about anger. Now I want to give you a little bit of background just about anger because I think people just view it as one sort of solid, like singletary thing. Uh, there's disagreement, but the most people who study emotions can find agreement that there's two primary thoughts associated with anger thought associated with anger is that something is blocking us or we think we're being mistreated or experiencing injustice. So if you think of all the different times you've been angry, those are the two thoughts. And when I first learned about this years ago, I started watching and listening. And it's like, I could find that when people were angry about something, those were, those were the two themes that showed up. It didn't come across as clear as that, but when you dug down a little bit, it's like, it's unfair. Or I don't like this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Or... Um, something's getting in my way. That was the underlying theme to it. It was a lot of different instances, but that was essentially what it was. And I think people also are afraid to be angry. Um, and I think it's it's dishonest to, with yourself to not acknowledge your anger because then you can't do anything with it. And like in this last week, so a couple of weeks ago, some 16-year-old with without a license nearly hit me head on. I moved to the side just in time so he clipped my quarter panel damaged a truck I wasn't really mad at him but I took my truck into for repairs there's like three places I could take it the first place I took it to I had good reviews but when I got in the woman was really dismissive and like oh we, we only deal with high-end cars I'm like I know my truck's 11 years old but I love my truck there's nothing, why can't you fix it it's almost like you're, you're not you know you're not of us is how it felt and I was like that's just rude and just really, she could have just said that we don't specialize in those vehicles. We specialize in European vehicles. There's, there's so many different ways she could have said it or left me intact when I left. But I felt like she was damaging me. It's like, you're not worthy to be here. Please leave. And I was like, that is just so rude. So I was more angry about the way she treated me than the kid who ran into my truck, which doesn't really make sense. Um, the tub that was leaking, I'm sitting there about to go to bed and it's just dripping downstairs 
have no idea how to fix that. I figured it out. It wasn't all that complicated. But at the moment, I was getting ready to go to bed. And it was just like all of June has been a catastrophe of one sort or the other. And then it, my past self, I wake up in the morning. It's like, you didn't need to eat the ice cream. Why did you eat the ice cream? <laughs> so it's just like when you when you really start thinking about emotional stuff, it's like they're all over and they, they're real. Um, and part of it is just acknowledge when they're going on. Now, another thing is qualitatively, there are different types of anger. So just being annoyed, that's anger. It doesn't have to be fury. So annoyance is a mild anger caused by a nuisance or inconvenience, frustration, response to repeated failures, exasperation um, caused by repeated or strong nuisance, argumentativeness, bitterness, vengefulness, up to fury. So it ranges. To somebody who's annoyed is angry. Now, they're not going to want to admit that because it's like comes across the wrong way. But I think if you're honest with yourself, annoyance is a type of anger. It's very low level, but it's anger. Um, and part of it, in terms of one of those lies we're talking about, is denial. If we're not honest with ourselves, I mean, it's a, that's the you got to start somewhere. So I would argue that we probably need to start there. But the thing is, all of these, even though they vary in intensity, they all have the same associated thoughts or a sense of injustice or some sort of opposition to our goal. And then there's all kinds of different responses people have when they're angry, which are pretty common. You can dispute it. You can be passive aggressive, insult, quarrel, scream, yell, simmer, brood, or pout, uh, suppress, physical force, or undermine. There's all kinds of things people do when they're angry. Um, So with more awareness of anger, with it, whichever Bible you're using, would you read verse 26 and just listen to it in terms of what I've shared? Please. Well, okay, you follow along and I'll read what I've got. We'll do that. I'm sorry, I wasn't It was bad instruction. I'll read what I've got because it unpacks a little bit more and you just follow along. Be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior. Yet do not sin or miss the mark. Do not let your anger cause you shame or allow, allow it to last until the sun goes down. And 27, do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin by holding a grudge or nurturing anger or harboring resentful or cultivating bitterness. Now, to talk a little more about this, a grudge is when you can't or won't let go of feelings of anger or resentment towards someone who wronged you. It can be in response to something that occurred, perceived danger, or an action you believed was against you. Resentment and bitterness often occur when a person is unwilling to give, grant, or allow forgiveness, which I think is kind of a core component of what's talked about in the Bible and how God treats us. Matthew 25, 21 through 26, Jesus spoke to the prohibiting um, against murder, the prohibition against murder. The commandment is clear, you shall not murder. Going back to the Pharisees and the behavior piece I was talking about, the Pharisees and scribes understood this in the narrowest sense, believing they had kept the commandment if they had never shed innocent blood. But Jesus says that the commandment extends to emotional murder, to a sense of resentment and anger against someone. Such anger is a violation of 
of man of man made in the image of God. And so when we do this towards each other, we're doing it towards somebody who has the image of God. Thing is, when we're doing it, people will talk about that, you know, your their anger, their bitterness, their um, grievances keep them warm at night. It's like we may kind of make fun of it, but the reason that people say that, there's something satisfying about hanging on to a grudge, feeling that somebody owes you something and not letting go of it. But when we do that, we're sinning against somebody who's made in God's image, which is not cool. It's not something that we should be proud of. And, that, and I'm speaking from somebody who knows how to hold a grudge. I'm not proud of it, but I understand it. Now, if we look at verses 26 and 27, here's a question for you guys. Um, anger is not a sin, but it can be. The question I've got is, when is anger encouraged, and when does it become a sin? When you look at this, anger is not a sin because it says you can be angry. The question is, when is anger encouraged, and when does it become a sin? What are your thoughts? When it's becomes a sin, one way I think is when you when it becomes a um, means for retaliation, revenge uh, upon someone else, and and it's not done in the proper way. You can be angry and, and. and do it in a loving way. Uh, and going back to your original definition of love and agape and all that, one of the things I tell my children that love also does will will allow you to be hurt. You can you can do that out of love, and allow you to suffer out of love. One, you know, um, atheists say that there is no God because. God was loving, he would not allow us to suffer. And that's not God's definition. Uh, and I would tell my kids, I said, I allowed you guys to get shots and it hurt you, but I did it out of love to keep you from getting the disease that would do greater damage to you down, down the line. And so when God allows us to suffer and whatever, he's doing it out of love as a corrective behavior, as a as a thing to try to correct behavior, not to get revenge or not necessarily to bring the unnecessary hurt upon someone. We we tend to get angry and want revenge and want to hurt the other person back. Well, and I think too part of it is like how we're treating the other person, like how we view the other person. We view them as beneath us or not a child like made in the image of God or something like that. I think we could treat them as an other and we treat them differently. It's like even this morning, Brought Asher in for slides, went back, knew Ethan was tired, woke him up, so he got 30 minutes, went back, he still wasn't up, went back third time, he's still up. And my first thought is, dude, you're getting in my way. I've got a show for Sunday school, actually I have responsibility this morning. You're getting it, you're blocking me from like the goal, which is to show in a timely way. But the other part was, and I could have lashed out at him which I think would be a normal response. But the other part is like, he's tired. He doesn't probably understand it. He's not intentionally doing this to me, just to make me late. It's not like he's, and what's gonna build him up? What's gonna be helpful? It's so it's like I stressed why I need him to get ready and then how much time he, and the behavior was then how I spoke to him and, and what, what I told him what our goal was. And he was able to do that. Now had I blown up and tore into him, 
and treated him like he wasn't worth anything and in, in, in a way that wasn't loving. It's like he, his, his and I relationship would have been much different this morning, but it worked out fine. So it, when kind of using this, it's like I can kind of walk through experiences and sort of break that apart in terms of like what was going on and speaking, doing, nonverbals, that's your behavior. So when you scowl at somebody, it's a behavior. When you're crying, it's a behavior. It's what people see. Um, well, the first half of your question, when is it okay to be mm-hmm. angry, angry, I think it's, it's okay to feel a sense of anger whenever we observe sinful things and uh, our natural response is that's wrong, that's sin. Where we often fail as human beings is the part that's already been mentioned is how do we respond to that sin? So if I see something sinful in life, whether it's, uh, well, sexual identity is one, for example, that a lot of people are trying to say is good, but it's sinful. But it doesn't give me the right to then turn around, respond angrily, and then treat that person as something less than someone who's made the image of God. You know, I I shouldn't like attack or, um, well, I know what I'm thinking about, but to to respond with name calling and other types of viciousness, then tear them down. down, Yeah, tear them down. Even Even when I'm right then, I'm still wrong because though I see the sin, I then behave sinfully. Which is so confusing, mm-hmm. and it's hard because you're like, "But I'm right, but I'm not right," and yeah. then you walk away from that experience with that other person, and they just see you as a jerk, and you're like, "I am a jerk, but it's, I'm right." It, it's <laughs> easy to look at that some person is and forget that they have a soul and feelings and a life experience and a process of life that brought them to that point, and and not respond in love, caring for their soul, rather than just, "You make me feel bad." Therefore, yeah. you need to stop it. You know that kind of response. Yeah, I think I think we see with Christ and the apostles a uh, righteous zeal, which I would say would be uh, an anger. Uh, but that, that's that's not against sin, like we would expect. It's usually against heresies and those who are uh, attacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You read Galatians, and you're like you can't. You you've got to see Paul is miffed. Yeah. He is angry at, at these at the Judaizers in the church who are tearing down uh, the church and trying to uh, slip in uh, this this heretical teaching. So you know those I think there's a righteous zeal uh, mm-hmm. that, can be a, that can be a righteous anger. Yeah, and the thing is, there's lots of words for for we're, we're trying to come up with words to explain things that we feel or perceive, and it's like. We don't have the right words, which is part of the reason I think going through like the Amplified and having more words in this is more helpful than not. Um, you feel a certain way and somebody labels it this or this, and it's like they're synonyms. You're trying to explain the same thing. So righteous zeal, anger, it's a really a, a appreciable difference. Um, I'd say one of the, the things would be different is, is it the old self and the new self? Because the guys who were making idols were kind of myth that, you know, the sales were going down. They're angry too. So I'd say anger's anger, and then where's it coming from, and, and how are you behaving with it, and how are you treating people? Um, 
And the thing is, the behavior, there's a lot of stuff that happens before the behavior, and there's other things that could be going on that you suppress, and your behavior looks okay, but this is trash. So there's a lot going on that we don't see that we're held accountable for. I think as you pointed out, the anger itself is not the problem. Anger is like a smoke detector. It could be going off because you're cooking something in the kitchen, or it could be going off because your house is burning down. So it's like it alerts you to a problem. You can't really control your anger in the sense of being so completely mindful that something that bothers you, you just immediately are not angry. It's like it just happens, right? Mm -hmm. So it's to alert you to something, and then how you respond to that is what matters. And so it's like the scripture tells us to take our thoughts captive. It says that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Um, and then like, like Jeremy pointed out, you know, he also overturned tables. And, uh, but I see it much more as just like a, a signal to pay closer attention to what's going on right now. Yeah, and when we're talking about injustice, it's a moral question about right and wrong, and people are gonna differ on that depending on what the worldview is. And so I think part of it is just recognizing it, that in itself can make it easier to have a conversation with people. If you just recognize they're coming from a different place, like you talk to a, um, uh, a vegan versus somebody who's an omnivore, and they're discussing a, you know, food, you, you, you can start at a different place just knowing that we're, we're at different places here and you can actually have mutual respect for both people because to be a vegan is not easy. So to do that, now why you're doing it, I may disagree, but the fact that you are doing it, I mean, that's, that's some discipline. That's, there's a lot involved in there, so I can respect that in terms of, I may not agree with maybe the why behind it. So you can have a conversation, not hate each other, maybe even learn something from each other. Um, I feel like a lot of anger comes from thinking too highly of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, even, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's righteous anger, having a conversation about someone else's sin. Like Devin was saying, if you're right initially, but then you respond wrong, it's because you're thinking too highly of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just think a lot of us, we forget who we are. And are we actually treating them the way we would want to be treated? Yeah. Probably not. I was thinking the same thing. Like, <laughs> it's good to have a righteous deal for the things that God has deemed abomination. Like, it's good for us to be angry at the things that God is angry about. But how seldom do we, how seldom are we angry at our own sin? Like, when we see ourselves um, grieving the Spirit with our behavior, with our actions, with our thoughts, our emotions. <clears throat> How often are we angry, righteously angry, at our own sin, to the point of being able to mortify it? Like, I know that when, when I realize that I'm sinning, my initial reaction usually isn't anger. Sometimes it's just like I'm grieved or I'm just frustrated or you know, just tired. I'm just like, ugh, am I seriously doing this again? Yeah. Well, even to go a step further, acknowledge it to ourselves, but acknowledge to somebody else and apologize. Mm -hmm. And that's forgiveness. Like, <laughs> That's a whole another step. Uh, so 28, the thief who has become a believer must no longer steal, but instead work hard, making an honest living, producing that which is good with his own hands, that he will have something to share with those in need. Um, morally, most are going to say we shouldn't steal. 
there's a there's a question on one of the IQ tests that I give that asks about that, and there's some pretty pitiful answers that kids give. Um, just mostly that it's wrong or God will be mad. But it's like it doesn't really get into. Um, it has to do with relationship is a big part of it. But um, many think it's wrong, but can't provide much of an explanation other than it's wrong or you might get caught or get in trouble. Um, but what about a Christian? Honest work is work that you produce or results of work that meets the needs of another. Your work benefits you and others. There's no harm done to anyone. It's useful and it's honest. That There's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, 29. Do not let unwholesome, foul, profane, worthless, or vulgar words ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech that is good for building up others according to the need and the occasion so that we're will be a blessing to those who, who hear you speak. And when I, part of what I think of this is when you're talking to them, is we're t- when, or when we're angry, are we tearing people down or are we building them up? We can be angry and build people up too. But there's a choice there. Um, and part of it is like, what, what, how, do you really care about the person? Do you want the best for the person or are you just trying to win? And if you win, that means they lose. And, that's not much for the relationship. All communication, reasoning, or motives should be useful, good, and beneficial to others. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, the good person, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, uh, what we say exposes who we are. So instead of asking, um, can I say bad words without sinning? We probably should be asking, are my words reflecting the Holy Spirit's transforming, transforming work in my life? Is it building up others? So I think there's probably a wide berth of things that we can say. Uh, there's things that are probably pretty colorful that I'm not sure are actually a sin. But you could also say the same thing in another context, and it would be. Which I think makes this kind of difficult in some ways because some of it's the context, some of it's our motivation, some of it's our audience. Um, so I don't think it's specifically the words because if we're like, oh, you must say it this way, then we're just getting back to behavior, which is what the Pharisees were talking about. We're not looking at the intent or the spirit behind it um, or whether it's building up other people. There's some things you could say around another adult that might be just off color humor and you could question if it is. There's some things you would say around, you say the same thing around a kid, it's just wrong. So. I think part of it is, at least for me, not trying to box people in because I think that, that when we talk about it this way, it's a lot broader and it's more encompassing than trying to come up with the boxes we're supposed to walk inside of. Um, and 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but seek to please him by whom you were sealed and marked, branded as God's own for the day of redemption, the final deliverance from the consequences of sin. Um, now, given the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, we know that each person of the triune Godhead delights in what the other persons are doing. There's a mutual indwelling um, among the persons of Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son and the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit and the, S- the Father and the Son. Um, to put on Christ, then, is to put on the Father and the Spirit and living a new life in Christ according to the pattern he gives us pleases our triune creator. On the other hand, violating the standards given to the disciples of Jesus not only grieves the Son of God, but also the Father and the Spirit. So 
to grieve, when you look at, when I looked up the Greek to the extent I could, it's like to pain, distress, or to be sad. So God's spirit is especially sensitive to sin because of his close relationship with us. Those who have been saved and defined as the Lord's holy people, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Uh, the spirit seals us for the day of redemption in Ephesians 4, 30. Um, he dwells within us when we, Christ and Jesus, <clears throat> marking us as the people of God who will be spared the divine wrath on judgment day. By sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we're increasingly conformed to our Savior's image and returning to a pattern of life wholly dominated by sin is possible for those who the Spirit has sealed. Uh, still, even Christians fall into a significant sin, which grieves the Spirit, introducing a distance between Him and us. Um, so in some ways, when you think of like you could be sinning against other people, but the same thing is that the Spirit's dwelled within us, it's like we're doing that against God. So it's like, none of it's good. <laughs> it's just like, it, it's none of it's a good thing. Now, can you not do it? And if you And if you can simply not do it, and focus on the behavior, you're still missing the point. Um, so, 31, let all bitterness, embittered and resentfulness, wrath and anger, violent passion or fury, and clamor, perpetual animosity, resentful, resentment, strife, fault-finding, and slander, abusive language or maliciousness, be put away from you along with every kind of malice, all spitefulness, verbal abuse, and malevolence. Um, the thing is, stopping can be challenging, especially with thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Um, thing is, I'm not doing, I'm not going to do that, but now what? Thing is, in psychology, one of the things that they found is if you just stop something, you find replacement behaviors. And what I find interesting, in Ephesians are like, take this off and put this on or replace it with this. So, well, what am I supposed to do if I'm without falsehoods? Well, tell the truth. We have replacement behaviors for all of these. So in some ways, it's it's very consistent with some of the, with the things that we study just about people. You can't tell them just to not do something because they, they find replacements for it. So we've been given replacement behaviors. So in some ways, it, it, it's helping us out in that way. It's not a matter of just don't. And, and I see that all the time with kids. So somebody will say, well, don't. It's like, well, what do you want them to do? You leave in a position where... Maybe that's the only response they know. They haven't, you haven't taught them a different way to do it. So you say, no, that's not very helpful. You say, stop that, start doing this. Decrease this, increase this. And over time, you can see a change in behavior, but the change in behavior and the way we're looking at it is a lot bigger than just the behavior. Um, so here's what Paul's suggesting instead of just stopping is replace the old nature with the new nature of God. So sort of in closing, be kind, which is gentle and useful. And one of the words that I really like is the word gentle. It has to do with taming wars for uh, horses for wars and that sort of thing. And what it, what it really means is that something that has a potential and also the idea of peaceful. Something that is peaceful is not something that is nice. Nice is impotent. Nice is weak. Uh, peaceful is something that has the potential of being very destructive but chooses not to. That's what I would say actual peace is. Gentleness is you could crush somebody, 
You could destroy somebody, but you use just enough pressure that's needed for the task. And so with a lot of these, we, we I think part of it is recognizing how terrible we can be and choosing to not. Um, that's part of what I think of when I read this last piece. Be kind, gentle, and useful. Be helpful to one another, tender-hearted, compassionate, and understanding. And I'd also suggest to be compassionate. If you don't understand the other person, you don't know what to do, which I'd say what that's what compassion is, is doing for others. If you don't know why they're doing it, if you don't appreciate what's going on, and you just jump in to do something for them, I'm not sure that's really compassion because you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. There's some people, when you watch what's going on, they need to struggle with something for a while so that they can get stronger and, and learn through it. There's other people, if they've been struggling for too long, now they're suffering and they need some relief. So if you don't understand where the person is, you could actually be harming them. And I'd say sometimes what we do out of compassion is just to relieve our, our own angst, our own feelings of discomfort, because we want it to go away. But if we actually invest in the other person enough to find out what do they need, so that's when we can actually be compassionate towards them. So be compassionate, understanding, forgiving, forgiving, pardoning one another readily and freely, just as God and Christ also forgave you. So in closing, kind of along with what Victor is talking about, elephants in the room and that sort of thing. Um, so a bomb went off in our church body in terms of what's gone on the last month. The past impacted us differently depending on where we were when it went off. And we can apply much of what we've talked about today. If anybody's wronged someone or left a perception of being slighted, we should seek out the person and understand what happened, make amends, apologize, and ask forgiveness. If we're holding grudges, we may need to let it go or speak to the person about it. We should not be speaking poorly of anyone, but building them up. So finding ways to be generous, honest, and loving are key. Paul's laid out quite clearly how we as Christians are expected to treat each other, and it should look quite different from those who don't know Christ. Christ has never... Christ has never asked us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He was honest and gentle. And forgiving us while we still hated him. We need to do the same with each other. Reaching out to understand and support those who don't show up, um, who aren't showing up to church anymore, and supporting those who do show up. Um, it would be useful to those who don't show up to know that we miss them. And if we need to right or wrong, we can also do that. We all have much we can do to support the body, and the body in turn will support us. We each need to do our part, and if each cell or part of the church body can focus on what it needs to do, which is to be good and build each other up, we can have unity of the Spirit walking towards Christ.
So right. I ended on time. <laughs> but any thoughts? Yes, I um, in the word Romans 12, 2, it tells us that we're to be not be conformed to this world, but be transformed mm -hmm. uh, by the renewing of our minds. So I have understood the putting on as more than just a replacement or a reformation, but we're told a transformation, which is what we cannot do in the old person, period. But we have we are a new person because we're transformed by the renewing of our mind by the word. And we can, we can do it. Is that right? Are we saying that when you're talking here that our behavior is I mean our emotions are still what rules us? No, I'm not saying any of these rule us. Okay. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just all I'm the only point of this is to recognize that they're three different things. There's some people there's teachers I work with, they're in their 40s, and after a conversation, it was the first time they realized their thoughts and emotions were separate things. So all this is is to help separate. It's just a model to help separate and to think about these things and not have them embedded where, just to recognize, because the Bible recognizes them as different. Yeah. But recognizing the all part of who we are, the part of who we are, and I'd say that all of these get transformed. These are all part of, when you're new or in Christ, all of these should start looking differently. Yes. Um, now, immediately, in some grand way, I, I, that uh, that's going to that that's all relative to each other. Um, but we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are no longer living for ourselves, but for Him. He is in, the in, the, in the way that I in the way I look at it, in part. And part of what you're saying is when we're in the old, we're walking away, we're facing away from Christ. Right. Once we are transformed or put on the new, because these things are happening just as part of the human creature, but we're walking away from God. Right. We're, we're willfully moving away. Once you put it on, we start walking towards. Toward it. Right. And so all of these, I would say, are still, still occurring. It's just that we're walking towards God. So these are all going to be changed in different ways. So if you were to look at um, the top of the triangle being your thoughts, and you talked about the heart being transformed by your mind, that word mind means your emotions, your will, um, all of those things. So if that T is being changed by the word of God, being changed by the spirit of God, then it's everything else is going to come after that. Well, I just say that that's... When our hearts changed, all those things get impacted. So some of them we notice and some of them we don't. Sometimes we focus really harshly on one, like the Pharisees, and we miss the mark. Um, there's a lot of ways to miss the mark. Again, it's just it's a tool to, like I said, a 40-year-old woman who didn't understand that her thoughts and her emotions were not the same thing, that she actually thought things based on her thoughts. They affected her behavior. If you look at a child, and I think that's kind of the way that God looks at us, or when Christ said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Um, you see a kid who's scratching on somebody's car. You've seen the meme, I love you, daddy, on the side of his car. <laughs> You're thinking, that's not good, but I love her, and she was trying to make me a present. And so the way you interact with her at that point is going to probably be a little bit different. 
Um, so thoughts, because I work as a counselor and a social worker as well, use this model often. The thing that comes before thoughts, behaviors, emotions is something called core beliefs. That's right. what we believe about ourselves, about others, about the world, about our future, about our past, about God. So that verse of Romans 12, a renewing of your mind, that's what comes to mind for me, is renewing of those core beliefs. That's the, your, wor your worldview. Your worldview, your identity. That's what's going to impact how you filter everything, which then triggers that triangle. And is your identity in Christ? <laughs> if it is, it affects this. If your identity is in your gender, then you're going to approach things that way. If, you're a if your identity is in being a husband or a wife, that's going to affect it. Our identity is not supposed to be in those things. It's in Christ. And that's why we're supposed to set our minds on the things above because we can't operate in the flesh. And so it's, it's uh, help us, Lord. So that's, that's partly why I was saying more words is better because I think we're all trying to say the same thing. We're just trying to use different words based on our own experiences and based on our own vocabulary to try to agree with each other. I think the Bible agrees with what she was saying first pop in my mind when she started that was as a man thinks in his heart so is he and it kind of goes with that as a man thinks in his heart so is he <laughs> and it brings it up I also was thinking about her last statement Jesus was a perfect person he never sinned he was sinless and he did everything well right and yet he's the most misunderstood person that's ever existed exactly. then he turns around and tells us who are sinful people to emulate him to walk as he walked and it makes me understand how much why he does that tell us to do the impossible because it makes us fall to our knees realize we need grace and ask the holy spirit to give us that grace to be able to, to, to do so because we can't do this on our own we need his his help his grace to do it and he never took his eyes off of god another thing too i think is as Christians, we're able to do this because we have the Holy Spirit. But sometimes when we realize, especially as a female, emotions can be a problem for me, I'm sure. And a lot of us. But sometimes when I, I, I have the clarity of mind to realize this emotion is a problem for me, I'm having a really hard time surrendering this emotion or um, having self-control over this particular feeling I'm having. Um, sometimes I think it can be really helpful to just choose obedience even if I'm not feeling like being obedient like choosing to obey Christ and smiling at my family when I don't feel like smiling honestly sometimes the act of smiling can bring about the emotion the emotional obedience not in a fair safe way like you know whitewash tunes like just fake it till you make it kind of thing <coughs> in a way yeah sometimes choosing to walk in a manner worthy can can cause your emotions to sort of follow behind and, and that way you're leading your emotions onto the right path because um, because we have the Holy Spirit and we can use that sometimes to, to change our hearts. Now, there's times I really don't, like the first men's retreat I went to, did not want to go. Did not want to go. But I know that this will be good for me. It was. So I agree with you that our behaviors can affect our thoughts and our emotions. That's, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the point of even introducing this, is that they're all at play. Um, Hyper-focus on any one of them. This is Mark, and trying to be doing all of these at the same time is really hard. 
I'll close this and uh, get out of here. Lord, um, thanks for all the um, all of us coming and willing to discuss what you're wanting for us and trying to understand that better using the limited words and ideas that we actually have. Um, we can just keep walking towards you and trusting the spirit. Um, it will tend to work itself out. So just having faith in, in you and what you've done for us, we should be able to rest in that and have some sense of peace even when we're making mistakes while we're doing things that are not easy. Amen.